Meantime, it's Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a triumphal entry into Jerusalem. As I mentioned earlier, what we're trying to do this, this Lent was to make Lent come alive in a way that maybe for many of you, you're doing this for the first time. Because Lent in a, in a liturgical church is, is one thing, but some of you who are, you grew up, you know, raised by wolves like Frank over here, um, <laughs> has no idea. Uh, he, he missed that whole thing, so he wasn't paying attention. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, so, so in, in non-liturgical churches, you know, you may have heard the word, but you never really experience what it means to go through a time of preparation liturgically. And we're not a liturgical church here, obviously, but what we're trying to do is bring in some of those elements. And every week we were trying to come up with a kind of a, maybe it's a maxim, uh, a way of, another point of living life that would bring us along this journey of preparation to new life. Because, like I said earlier, seeing the risen Lord is not automatic. His closest followers didn't recognize him when they saw him. They had to be prepared to see him. It took some time before their eyes were opened. It's going to be the same thing for us. And this is what Palm Sunday is all about. But if you go back now, this is the sixth Sunday of Lent. On the first Sunday of Lent, what we tried to do was to say, okay, based on that parable of Jesus that's going to be read on Holy Tuesday of the ten bridesmaids, five who were prepared and five who were not, the whole point of that story is to try to show us how we need to be prepared. We need to be alert. We need to maintain balance between the present in our lives and our anticipation of future lives based on the, 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 the bride and groom and the wedding tradition of, of ancient Israel. Can we maintain that balance? Can we be present here and now even as we anticipate radical new life and radical change and all that's coming with that? Because to flop down one side or another is not what it's about, to maintain balance. If we can maintain that balance, how does that change the way we live our lives, the experience that we have? On the second week, we're talking about maintaining continuous prayer. The continuous prayer that, that, uh, that Paul talks about, but as Jesus talked about on Palm Sunday, hey, if these people don't praise, the very rocks are going to cry out. This notion that all creation is singing and it's up to us just to join in the general dance, join in the song itself. Maintaining balance between our thoughts and what is real, maintaining continuous prayer, to challenge on week three, challenge set beliefs, challenge the belief system that we currently have. Not just let it continue to roll over our lives, to dictate our responses based on certain stimuli because of the programming of the past. What we were taught, what we believe may not be true, and it may be limiting, and we won't know unless we challenge it. When Jesus overturned the tables and the cleansing of the temple, that is going to be the story for tomorrow, Fig Monday of Holy Week, he was challenging the status quo. He was challenging those set beliefs. He was trying to get the people to see there's a different way to approach this, a different way that creates all this open, airy space for new life. Challenge those set beliefs. Week four, Frank spoke. He was talking about celebrating our place, celebrating the roles that we play 
in our communities. Not just grinding them out, not resenting our position in life. And beyond acceptance, actually celebrating where we are, what we provide, and doing it better. Immersing more into our place and kingdom. And then week five, talking about Jesus on Monday, Thursday, which is coming up during the, the Last Supper, the foot washing episode, where he strips down and washes his disciples' feet. Can we learn to value humble service as the basic human purpose that we are here and living in this world to complete? Think about those five thus far. To balance present and future, to maintain continuous prayer, continuous awareness of God's presence, to challenge our set or current belief systems, to celebrate our place and our role in community, and to value humility and value service as our basic purpose. What would your life look like? What would change in your life, your attitudes and your experiences of each moment, if you actually did those five things? They're there in your bulletins if you want to follow along or take them with. What would actually change if we lived this way? See, we wouldn't just be prepared for new life. We'd actually be living it right here, right now. We'd be experiencing it right here, right now because the blinders would be off. And finally, what we're going to talk about today, the sixth week, is we would finally be able to see God in every face, in every circumstance, in every moment of our lives. Left to our own devices, left to the thoughts in our head, we're going to split these things off. We're going to say, these are the things of God and these are just the things I've got to do to pay the bills and to do this and do that. And we have these things all separated out in separate boxes. We don't see God here, but we can maybe find God here. But what Jesus is talking about with kingdom is a constant awareness of God's presence. And we can finally learn to see God in the most unexpected places, in the most unexpected faces, and it changes everything about our lives and our experience. And this is the meaning of Palm Sunday. This is really, when you get right down to it, this is what Palm Sunday is all about. It's seeing the truth of things, the actual reality of things as they are, and not as we expect them to be, not as we imagine them to be, not as our set belief system demands that it should be. We're no longer judging every moment, every person as significant or insignificant, helpful, helpful or unhelpful maybe to our agendas or however it is that we judge things. When we start to see God in everything, everything becomes sacred. Everything becomes significant. Every single person, everything that we do. I want to read this little quote from Mother Teresa, and you can follow along with me at your, your little inserts there. She wrote, I have an opportunity to be with Jesus 24 hours a day. And remember what Mother Teresa was doing. She was the head of the Houses of the Poor. She founded the Houses of the Poor in Calcutta, which is basically just palliative care. It was just giving people who were terminal, people who were dying, the comfort and the care and the love that let them know that they weren't doing this alone. And yet she says, I have an opportunity to be with Jesus 24 hours a day. 
among the filth, among the stench, among the dying, among the very poorest of the poor, among the untouchables of India's caste system. Seeking the face of God in everything, everyone, all the time, and his hand in every happening. This is what it means to be contemplative in the heart of the world. Sometimes we think that contemplation means we separate from the world. We go off into our little prayer closet. No. You can be contemplative in every moment, immersed in what you're doing. And she says that's what it means. Seeing the face of God in everything and everyone all the time, his hand in every happening, this is what it means to be contemplative in the heart of the world. Seeing and adoring the presence of Jesus, especially in the lowly appearance of bread and in the distressing disguise of the poor. Each one of them is Jesus in disguise. Love that. And this is what Jesus is talking about. This is what Palm Sunday is really all about. Can we see Jesus? Can we see the Father, therefore, because Jesus and the Father are one, as part of and behind every face, every moment? Now, we imagine that we know Jesus. We're so familiar with him, many of us. We've been raised on Jesus. But do we really know Jesus? Everyone, close your eyes for just a minute. Close your eyes and imagine Jesus standing right in front of you. What does he look like? See his face? See his hair? See his clothing? What does he look like to you? Imagine that face. You got it? Now open your eyes and look at the photo on the page of the insert. Did you imagine that? What that is, is a forensic reconstruction the best that we can do to try to understand not necessarily what Jesus looked like, but what a typical Palestinian, I should say Palestinian, a typical Hebrew man living in Palestine, what was to become Palestine in Israel, in the Galilee, what that man would have looked like. How did they do it? You've probably seen those shows where they have the skull and they put all the, you know, the various depths of skin tissue and then they create the, the clay mask and they then color it. Then they used exhaustive forensic evidence in terms of finding all the skeletons that they could find incomplete, complete from the period of time. And then they used all the historical context, everything that they could to understand how was the hair really worn? How was the beard worn? Trying to find any kind of clue. And having done that, you know what they figured out? The average man living in the Galilee in the first century was about five foot one inches tall and weighed on the average probably about 110 pounds. (laughs) That would look like a hobbit to us, you know? This is what we're talking about here. They would have been dark skinned, very swarthy, and Paul tells us that it was, was, uh, you know, it was weird for a man to have long hair. You know, it wasn't what they did. Their hair was cropped short. Their beards were cropped short, typically speaking. And they were rounder in the face. They were, they were heavy-set, burly people. Jesus is a carpenter, someone who's working with his hands and working physically all the time, would have been you know, heavily set with muscle. But he would have been short, most likely. And we say, okay, well, there's such a thing as recessive genes. Couldn't he have been six foot tall with blue eyes and, and blonde hair? Yeah, anything is possible. But remember this. 
When he is arrested, the authorities have to hire Judas to point him out in the garden because otherwise he could have passed for anybody and they didn't know who he was. They had to find someone who knew him to point him out and bring him to them. Therefore, Jesus didn't stand out from the crowd. This is just his physical aspect. It's not the most important thing. But it serves as a reminder here. We think we know Jesus. We think we understand him. We've turned him into this familiar teddy bear that stands at our side. But Jesus is very other in many respects. Radically different. Someone who would really make us uncomfortable. Someone we wouldn't even let on an airplane with us because we're afraid that he might have something in his shoe. This is... This is something to think about. I'm just trying to get a lever in here so we can see how deep our set beliefs go, how deep the stereotypes go, so that we can start breaking up that soil and we can find something that is really true, something that Jesus is trying to tell us. Look at Isaiah 53, verse 2. For he grew up before him like a tender shoot. Now what he's talking about in context here is the Messiah. This is Isaiah prophesying. For he grew up before him, capital H, Yahweh, Yahweh God, like a tender shoot and like a root out of parched ground. He has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him or appearance that we should be attracted to him. It's so easy for us to imagine Jesus towering above us with this beautiful form. But what if he stands a whole head shorter than us and is not attractive at all? Can we still see the risen Lord in that? Would we recognize him along the way or just pass along by, still looking for something else? You know, it's been the same question for 2,000 years, and this is really the story of Palm Sunday because the people missed the hour of their visitation, as Jesus says. Palm Sunday. This is a Sunday before the crucifixion. Jesus is in Jericho. Ministering, Jericho is on the west, what is now the West Bank, just along the west shores of the Jordan River. And he says, let us go up to Jerusalem. And all his disciples are going nuts. They're trying to talk him out of it. They're begging him not to go. They know how hot it is. They know what's going on. They know how Jesus has been sticking his finger in the eye of the Pharisees long enough. And they are ready. They are already plotting to kill him. They're plotting to get this threat to their power base out of their hair. And Jesus says, let's go to Jerusalem. Why did he want to go to Jerusalem? Well, because it was one of the three pilgrimage festivals, the festival of Passover, Pesach. There were three of them. They were called the Shalosh Regalim. That means the three foot journeys in Hebrew, if you want to literally translate it. The three pilgrimages that Deuteronomy says that each of the men have to make during the year. And there was Pesach, which was the celebration of the barley harvest in the springtime. Seven weeks later, that was Shavuot. And then in the fall, there was Sukkot, which was a celebration of, of barley, I'm sorry, the celebration of the harvest of olives and grapes. And Shavuot is the wheat, which comes seven weeks after the barley. The barley is the first to ripen. And so they're agricultural festivals initially, but then they were tied to key points, spiritual points in Jewish history and Jewish life. And each one of them, the people were obligated to come back to Jerusalem 
and celebrate in the temple itself. And so Jesus is an ultra-Orthodox Jew. There's another alien point to us. We've kind of anglicized him, but we've also Christianized him. But he was a Jew. He lived as a Jew. And he never broke the written law. He was breaking the oral tradition all over the place. You know, just, like he said, poking his finger in the eye of the Pharisees, but not the written law. He absolutely followed that completely. And so Jesus travels from Jericho into Jerusalem. And let's read what Matthew 20, verse, uh, chapter 21 has to say about this incident, starting right at verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And so there you have this prophesy. What is it referring to? What that passage in Matthew is referring to is Zechariah 9, 9 to 10. Listen how Zechariah puts it. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king comes to you. He is righteous and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so Zechariah the prophet is pointing toward a time when the Messiah comes and comes on this donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now that section there, Hosanna, when we hear that word, I don't know what you think of, but every time I heard that word, especially as a kid growing up, I just thought it meant praise. You know, praise God, praise in the highest. You know, but that's not what it means at all. This section is a direct allusion to Psalm 118 at verse 24, which reads, This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Save us now, we beg you, Lord. Lord, we beg you, send prosperity now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. Save us, Lord, literally in Hebrew, Hoshiana Anayave. Hoshiana, save us, we beseech you. Hosanna is just the transliteration of Hoshiana. What the people are saying is, save us. Lord, we beg you, save us. Interesting change. We'll get to that in a second. What is going on here? What's all the symbolism going on? What's with this donkey? What's with the cult of the donkey? What's with the palm branches? What's going on? In the ancient world, going back at least as far as David, who ruled around 1000 BCE, palms were, oh, I should say, the king would ride on a horse if he was going to war, and he would ride on a colt or a donkey if he was going for peace. And so they understood this culturally. If the king rides into your city gates on a horse, look out, run for cover. If he comes on a donkey, things are okay. If he comes on the colt, 
the foal of a donkey. That's an even lower state. Jesus is saying something really, really specific here. And everybody is missing it. He's not just coming on the donkey, he's coming on the colt, the foal of the donkey. And the people still are seeing him as this victorious king. Palm branches in the ancient world were always symbolic of prosperity. To the Jewish nation, the date palm was a symbol of this prosperity. And they were waved in front of a victorious king. When the king went out to battle and he came back victorious, the palm branches were cut down and waved. And the coats and the palm branches were laid before him to create a path into the heart of the city. So what's going on here? Jesus enters the city. The day before is the day, it's sometimes called Lazarus Saturday, before Palm Sunday. It's where he raises Lazarus from the dead, which represents the height of his fame within the people. That spread like wildfire throughout the area. Huge crowds were following him. He had already angered and worried the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious authorities to the point that they were already plotting his death. Everything was coming to a point, right? He enters the city, the people know, and they have this spontaneous reaction. The Pharisees are watching, the Sadducees are watching, and you can bet the Romans are watching because they've been fighting the zealots now for a generation and dealing with the difficulties of sedition and riots and all the things that the zealots were doing to try to destabilize Roman power in the region. And here comes this guy who has the whole city of Jerusalem in an uproar. They're laying down the palm branches. They're showing him how they feel about him in terms of their relationship to him as a victorious king. They believe he is the Messiah, the Mashiach, the one who is going to come and kick the Romans out. And this is not being lost on anyone. And then Hoshiana, save us, we beseech you. And so the question then that we have to ask is, well, Save us from what? What are we trying to be saved from? What are the people asking Jesus to do? Well, the people and the zealots, of course, are looking to Jesus to save them from the Romans, from the Roman occupation. They're looking him to change their lot in life. Instead of being at the bottom of a pyramid that ends at Rome with Roman power, they want to be part of a sovereign nation which is going to lift everyone's boats higher. They want Jesus to come in, raise an army, throw the Romans out, and reestablish a sovereign nation. They want Jesus to save them from the Romans and from oppression. But right next to them, looking down, are the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What are they looking to be saved from? They're looking to be saved from Jesus himself. He is a threat to their power base. The Pharisees' power base came through the law. The Sadducees' power base came through the temple and the temple practice. Jesus was threatening all of that. The next day he's going to overturn the, the, the tables and cleanse the, the temple. That's not going to take him in the right direction. But already, they already realize he's got to go or we're going to go or the whole nation's going to go because the Romans are going to come down on us like a ton of bricks. They're looking to be saved from Jesus What about the Romans? Same thing, just different perspective. The Romans had an empire that has been described by many historians as an empire without a soul. There really was no overriding philosophy. There was no overriding understanding of what they were doing in the world, not like the Greeks. The Greeks believed that they had a superior culture and society, and they tried to convert everyone they conquered into 
Greek cities and Greek culture. Romans didn't care. As long as you paid your taxes, you could do whatever you wanted to do. You know, Just keep the tax flow, revenue coming back to Rome. That's all they were concerned about. And so everything had to be peaceful and everything had to just be running like a clock. And anything that disrupted that clockwork, they would come down so hard, they would kill so many people, string them up nude and, and nailed to crosses for everyone to see, to make sure that everyone stayed in line. And so they're looking at this with the same thing. They want to be saved from sedition. They want to be saved from any disruption from this particular province. And then you have Jesus' followers. Hoshiana, what do they want to be saved from? Well, really, they wanted to be saved from anonymity. They wanted to be part of this power structure that they still, even at this point, believed that Jesus was going to bring them. Just in the chapter before, in, verse, in chapter 20, Matthew tells a story, and Jesus had just gotten finished saying that the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to be killed by the Gentiles and by the religious authorities there. He just gets finished telling them that. And here comes James and John with their mother up to them and saying, hey, you know what? Actually, the mother comes and the guys are standing behind her, right? Comes up to Jesus, and well, what can I do for you? What do you want? <laughs> well, when you come into power, Lord, can my boys, James and John, sit at your left hand and your right hand? They don't get it. They're looking to be part of something big. They want this ticket to the big time. They want to grab onto Jesus' coattails and be ending up at the echelons of power. They still don't understand. And Jesus has to try again to give them another lesson about who he really is, what he is here to do. Over and over and over again, he has to let people know, this is not what I'm about. And Jesus here today, to us as well as to them, is still trying to show us who he is. Because all we really see, typically, is what we need and what we want. In five days, these people who are laying down the palm branches and screaming, Hoshiana, save us, Lord, are going to be shouting, crucify, crucify. How fast we turn on the people who disappoint us, huh? Jesus didn't deliver. He was now a Roman captive. He obviously wasn't the Messiah anymore. Crucify him. Let him go. He has nothing for us. But Jesus is not here. He wasn't there, and he's not here now to give us what we want, to give us what we desire. He's inviting us simply to see what's real, to see the truth, because that truth has the power to set us free, the power to become completely connected with each other and with Father. And so the question that we should ask ourselves is, who is this Jesus who is riding into our lives on a donkey, on the colt of a donkey? Have we really looked beyond our needs, our desires, our fears to see who he really is? Are we going to continue to imagine him as we do? At Matthew 16 Verse 15, Jesus asks a central question of his followers. He says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's a key question. It's still the key question. 
Who do you, who do I, who do we say that Jesus is? Because the real Jesus is radical. The real Jesus is upsetting. The real Jesus will come in and overturn our tables, the tables of set belief, the tables of limiting belief and practice that keep us from being able to really see our Father's face. The real Jesus will never leave any of us unchanged. We can't be unchanged when we meet the real Jesus. I remember the first time I got the first glimmer of a Jesus that I'd never met before. After 30-some years of practicing Christianity in one way or another, to meet him for the first time, that was the beginning of all the change that I could imagine and more coming. I, le- I was unchanged by that first 30 years of practicing Christianity. I couldn't remain unchanged when I met this new, radical Hebrew Jesus for the first time. Are you afraid of change? Then you're invested. If you're afraid of change, you're invested in your current belief system. You're invested in the status quo. You're invested in what you think already is here, the illusion of what you believe. Just like the Romans and the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were invested in their power. Jesus was a threat to their power base. Think about it. When you hear something new, a new idea, a new way of doing something, what's your first reaction? You think about it? Something really, really radically different. Is your first reaction irritation? (laughs) You you start to get that that, that scowl on your face, you know? Um, Is it uh, defensive? Do you get defensive? Do you start debating things? Do you try to defend your own position? Are you outraged? Are you offended? What's your first reaction to something really different? Something that really kind of sticks a goad at your foundations? Or is it a smile? Is it a move to try to see if there's something new that you can learn? How are you going to deal with this real Jesus? If you're afraid of change, you're invested, over-invested in what you think you already have, and you are closed off to anything else. You will resist it. You will beat it down. You will debate it away. You will close off your mind to it. On the other hand, are you afraid of not changing? Or, maybe a better way of putting this, are you afraid of not having the things, the circumstances in your life changed? Then you're marginalized. You feel outside, looking in. You feel that life is sort of passing you by. You're not getting what you deserve. You're not getting your due share of things. And then who is Jesus to you? Well, then Jesus is Savior, isn't he? But we really mean Savior as fixer, don't we? We want Jesus to fix things for us. We want him to throw the Romans out, whoever that happens to be in our lives, whatever that happens to be in our lives that is irritating us, that is blocking and frustrating our goals and our agenda, the things that we think we need, deserve, and we want Jesus to fix those things for us. Throw the Romans out. He's our ticket to the big time, giving us meaning and purpose that we can't seem to find on our own. But again, Jesus is not here to fix our problems. 
He's here as an invitation to truth. He's here to show us how we can fix our own problems. And he's here to show us how to live richly even if we can't fix our problems. We can do that. But not if we think that the source comes from outside. Jesus said the source is always within, among, in the midst of. Don't look for kingdom out there someplace. And so at Luke 19... When Jesus approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. See, this is the tragedy of Palm Sunday. Jesus rides in, not hiding a thing about who he is, and they didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize the truth. They didn't recognize the moment of their visitation. They couldn't see Jesus as he is. They could only see what they wanted out of him. And they stayed on the path to war with Rome. And 40 years later, they are destroyed. The temple is destroyed. The irony is, Hoshiana, save us, as they were begging that day, misses the entire point, the entire person of salvation. They were looking at Jesus in such a wrong way that they completely defeated the notion of salvation. Jesus is saying, Jesus is showing, Jesus is inviting us to follow the way of truth that will lead to liberation, which is the salvation we seek. The Jews understood this. To Jews, salvation was spiritual liberation here and now. The ability to let all of the resources flow through us to the people who needed them realizing that we would always have enough. That was salvation. Save us now from all the things that would bring us down, limit our prosperity, limit our health, limit our relationship, limit our shalom, which is all of those things. To a Jew asking for salvation, that's what it is. But they thought it had to come from without. They thought it had to come by kicking the Romans out and creating a sovereign nation. And they missed the whole point of what Jesus was trying to bring them. The people were looking for someone else, something else, who would do everything for them. Well, they just stood back. Well, they just waited for it to happen. We do the same, don't we? In the midst of the plenty, we're starving to death. In the midst of everything that God has already given us and has been giving us from the beginning, everything that is within, among, and in the midst of, God's presence, his visitation, we keep looking elsewhere for the things that we think we need to become complete in order to feel like we're connected. Would we know Jesus if he were standing right here in front of us? Would we really, if he walked in that door, 
would we recognize him? Or would we want to shoo him off because he doesn't fit our culture, who we think is supposed to be here? Would we walk right past him the way we walk past homeless people or walk past beggars on the street on the way to something that we think is significant? A little bit from Richard Rohr. He writes, Prayer lives in pure open moments of right here, right now. This is enough. This is fullness. It is not right here, right now. If it is not right here, right now, it doesn't exist. If we don't know God now, why would we know God later? See, this is the, this is the, the key point. If we don't know God now, why do we think we'll know him later in what we imagine is heaven? How does that work? If we can't see him now, we think we're going to see him then. This is what Jesus talks about when he says, you know, Lord, Lord, let me into the kingdom, but I don't know you. But I did all these things for you. In other words, I served you as I imagined you to be. But I wasn't willing to challenge my set beliefs. I wasn't willing to stay in continuous awareness. I wasn't willing to balance present and and future. I wasn't willing to value humble service. And so I never really got the sense, the experience, the image of who you really are. And so we don't really have a relationship. A lot of busy work, a lot of things got done, 24-hour satellite networks and big churches and all these things happened. But there's no relationship yet because we haven't taken the time to find out who we really are. This is what Jesus is trying to say. And I think... Richard Rohr is putting his finger on it. If we don't know God now, why would we know God later? If we don't see God now, would the eyes be prepared to see God later? The mystics say no. We will not recognize God later if we cannot recognize God now. It's a matter of seeing God now through the shadow and the disguise. When we think about salvation, we normally think about God judging us. Yes, you can come in. No, you can't. What if salvation is not so much about God's decision about us, but our ability to simply see God as God is, to recognize God, to come in a doorway that if we're not prepared to see it's God's doorway, we would pass on by and keep looking. If you really look at it, the burden is always on us. God has already made his decision. He made the decision for us. He shows up showing us what relationship looks like on the colt of a donkey. Are we ready to accept that? Are we ready to see an unassuming God as the God that we want to be in heaven with? Rohr continues, the real question is, what does this moment have to say to me? Where is God? When is God? Here and now? Jesus was always saying that in terms of kingdom, in terms of the connection with Father. So, what does this moment have to say to me? Those who are totally converted come to every experience and ask not whether or not they liked it, but what does it have to teach them? What's the message in this for me? What's the gift in this for me? How is God in this event? Where is God in this suffering? You know, the hardest thing that we can do is to stop judging our moments. Jesus said, don't judge. Because as soon as you do, that standard that you use 
is the sum of your experience in life. All segregated out, separated out, significant, insignificant, based on these ideas or concepts or standards in our head. To begin to see everything as significant if we bring our awareness to it. To see God in every face and every moment changes everything. To recognize the hour of our visitation is what this is all about. Look at Matthew 25. Lord, when, we, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly, I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of these, you did it to me. It's not up to us to judge this or that. It's just to show up and relate. Let's read Mother Teresa again. I have an opportunity to be with Jesus 24 hours a day, seeking the face of God in everything, everyone, all the time, and his hand in every happening. This is what it means to be contemplative in the heart of the world, seeing and adoring the presence of Jesus, especially in the lowly appearance of bread and in the distressing disguise of the poor. Each one of them is Jesus in disguise. Jesus in disguise. I love that line, what she's talking about there. But it's a thin disguise, (laughs) if you want to think of it that way. Or, maybe better, this disguise of Jesus, disguise of the Father, is only as thick as our needs our fears, our desires, and our expectations, our investment in another image. And the point is here that God doesn't wear disguises. It's us that see them and miss our hour of visitation. Every moment is Palm Sunday. Every moment of our lives is Palm Sunday. Every moment our God is riding in on the foal or the colt of a donkey? Will we see him as such? Will we recognize the hour of our visitation? We won't if we haven't been practicing. And that's the key to this all. There's something that we need to do, that we need to bring to the table, to God's ever-presence. Balancing presence and future. Maintaining continuous prayer and awareness. Challenging set beliefs celebrating our place and our role in the community, valuing humility and service. If we can do those things, we will see right through God's disguise and realize that the disguise is only as thick as we place there. It's only us that keeps from seeing everything that God is. Only us, if we're not free enough or open enough, to see what is right before our eyes. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard thing to do. Help us this Palm Sunday to use this Palm Sunday as a lever, as a a starting block maybe, a traction point something that we can grab onto. 
an image that we can hold on to. That when we are going through our lives, going through the moments of our lives and not seeing you, feeling that we've been abandoned, feeling that there is just no meaning or purpose or connection in what we're doing, that we can picture you, five foot tall, riding a tiny little donkey, coming in in that humble aspect and turning our entire world upside down if we will let you. Help us to let you turn our world upside down. Help us to let you show us what is really valuable in life and how every moment carries you, your presence, and all the meaning and purpose that will fuel however long we get to breathe here. Thank you, Father, for everything that you've given us, for the love that you show us, for the scripture that enriches us, for your Son, whose resurrection and life fills us. We love you only because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, let's all stand.